Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Well, hey, uh, as the video suggested, uh, today we are starting a brand new series that we're going to be in for a couple of weeks entitled Back to the Table. Come on, let's all say that together. Back to the Table. And I think this is going to be a powerful time as we study out the table in Scripture. Uh, The table is, is a pretty massive centerpiece all throughout the Word of God. Uh, Generally, when you see the table represented in Scripture, it it represents solidarity, safety, intimacy, a a place of belonging. Uh, It represents a place for true community. When when somebody in the biblical context, the Hebraic context, where they would invite you over to their house to sit at the table, it was no small or insignificant gesture. It was a a big deal. It was to be invited into their world, into their life, and in fact, almost invited into their family. And the table is a really big deal to God, and it has always been a big deal to people of faith. Uh, But it it, it appears as though, over the last 18 months or so, as a result of everything that's happened, uh, the table has been a bit marginalized, hasn't it? Uh, It's a place that has been neglected and, and maybe even rejected a bit. Instead of being a place that represents safety and solidarity and intimacy, it's become a place of division and dissension. It's become a place of rejection and objection. Instead of a place that's celebrated, it's, it's become a place that's avoided for many people. Instead of you know, strangers becoming friends and family, it seems that friends and family are becoming estranged, no longer sitting at a table, leaving a lot of people isolated and feeling a bit orphaned, if you will. Uh, as the video suggested, I think one of the greatest losses we've endured over the last 18 months has been the loss of the table. And thus, this series, an invitation, and yes, a title, to come back to the table. And, and just to be clear, the, the table is not just a, a wooden rectangle or a marble oval, or if you're in college, you know, particle board from Ikea or whatever, you know, your particular eating apparatus is fashioned of. Uh, the table is, is both metaphorical and literal. Metaphorically speaking, it's It's that place where intentional relationship takes place, where you can go from laughing to crying in just a moment to praying in the next moment, a place where you kind of take off the Sunday mask and you check it at the door and you actually let people know who you are and what you're walking through and you intentionally let down some walls. You take off the mask, maybe both literal and metaphorically as well. It's a place where you are known and you know other people for real. It's a true place of intimacy. And so the table isn't necessarily just a literal object beneath a chandelier with some place settings. A table can be a coffee shop. A table can be a picnic in the park. It can be a blanket at the beach. It can be a hike in the hills with some friends. It can be archery. Go down the list. Archery? Where did that come from? It could be a lot of different places. The table, someone's like, yo, I want that group. But, but, but the table is, is literally any place where two or more are gathered with the intention of developing true, genuine relationship. And if you've been a part of this community for any length of time, you know that the table is a pretty big deal to us here at the Father's House. Not just because we got a whole bunch of people at this church that love to eat some good food. Come on, can I get an amen, somebody? Hallelujah. <laughs> but because 
the table is pretty central to all that we do here. In fact, this whole thing started around a table. Uh, we've mentioned this before many times, but uh, before we ever started Sunday gatherings, uh, Robin and I moved to this city, and we were met with that ever-present feeling of isolation and loneliness that many of us have experienced as we've moved into San Francisco, where you're surrounded by humans, but you feel completely alone. You know what I'm talking about? That, that, that feeling like, I'm keenly aware of the fact that nobody knows who I am, I don't know anybody, and it doesn't seem that anyone's even interested in a casual, hello, how are you doing, much less anything beyond that. They got their AirPods in, they closed their garage door, they don't wanna make eye contact as we walk down the street. We just felt completely isolated and alone. But in that crucible of loneliness, I think our mission was crystallized, and we knew that God had not just called us to this city to help build a church, but to make a family. To, to build a family that refused to let anybody live life alone. And so we did that. For the first nine months we lived here, from January until September before the church launched, um, we invited a whole lot of strangers over to our house to sit around a table, 130 of them to be exact. And, and I know that that's like terrifying. It's actually a bit miraculous that we weren't murdered or robbed at this point, just as I think about, you know, we invited all these people into our home, but we invited a bunch of people that we didn't know to sit around our table to enjoy a meal. And we shared our story and we heard their stories and we laughed together and we cried together and we prayed together. And now as I, even I look around this room, there, there are people here who sat at our table before this church was even a thing. Strangers that have become family. We ate tri-tip and chimichurri sauce together, butternut squash or spaghetti squash and some meat sauce, bo bottles of saldo. We just enjoyed each other's company. And in those intimate settings, because of the power of what takes place at the table, these complete strangers became a part of our family. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the power of the table, what takes place at the table. Again, not just the object, but in the intentional gathering of saints. And that isn't just how this church started. That's how this church is going to be sustained. That is how we've gotten to this point and how we will continue to go from this point. I want to be a part of a community of people that refuses to forsake the intimate gathering of believers sitting together and sharing life with one another. A space where we know true, genuine relationship is born. Because let's be honest, lives are not transformed in rows here on a Sunday morning. Lives are transformed as we live life with one another and we're open and honest about where we're at. And so over the next couple of weeks, in addition to teaching on this, you're gonna have an opportunity to hear from some people in our own community who have been a part of the table, who've experienced that life that is found around a table. And I'll let the cat out of the bag right now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna eliminate all of the mystery. The goal, the, the clear goal at the conclusion of all this is that every single one of you would find a space around a table. We want everybody in our church to be a part of intentional community. And not just so that you can check the box and say like, oh, I, I went to a group. You guys know that we've been talking about this for weeks. Shout out to the baptism testimony today. It was in a group that True Family was born. Yoli, love you. But, but we don't want everyone to say, oh, I, I went to a group and I checked a box and I did the next Christian thing. No, I want people to become a part of this family, to be deeply rooted in what God is doing in this church and in this city. And that happens in the context of groups. That's where people become family. And so uh, today you get an opportunity to hear from I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. Two of my favorite people in this church, no offense to everybody else. 
Uh, but these guys, wow. <laughs> these guys have really become pillars in the house. And I can honestly say there is no way we would be where we're at today without this couple. Uh, their generosity, their commitment to serve, uh, their evangelism. They're just two of the most incredible people on planet Earth. So why don't you turn your attention to the screen as we catch one more video and we hear from Richard and Juanita Seikau. Hi, my name is Juanita, and this is my husband, Richard, and we've been come to the father house about four years now. Yeah. Yeah. I've been here since uh, 1978, which is over 40 years, and Juanita maybe a little bit less. We've been looking for a home church for a long, long time. We heard about the church when our daughter went to school in David's. The member went to a church in Vacaville, father's house. So we went there, and we like it as a family because this is what we've been looking for such a long time. After we found out that uh, the church is going to be opened up somewhere like in Sunset, we were yeah. really excited because, oh, it's close by our home. We don't have to drive like an hour or so to go to the church. And when we met the Pastor Robin, Pastor Tim, um, you know, we got to know them. And finally, we have a dinner with them. We talk to them and say we want to get involved in this church and we want to uh, do what we can to make this church possible because we know that we heard from him that San Francisco is the most unchurched, you know, one of the city in the world. So we, mm -hmm. go, we want to change that. We want to be part of it so we can further God's kingdom. Well, we're very excited to starting the group. At first, I kind of scared because I know I'm kind of, in a way, shy person. So I don't really like to talk because I feel myself that I'm not good speaking in English. I like not. You know, I'm not really feel comfortable of speaking as well, but then I have to overcome. If you want to serve God, you are willing. You, you put in and God will give you strength and, you know, put you through. By doing that, not only that we grow deeper in, in the Word, and we also to get to know ourselves more, like what's our gifts, our talents, and then be able to use it, and also be able to get to know other brothers and sisters so we can encourage each other to use their gifts and talents. This way we can be more effective. Even though our church is getting bigger and bigger, because of a small group, we still feel as a family, we still connect to each other. Um. <laughs> okay, so I found out this morning that Richard and Juanita are not here. They decided to go to a different church. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, Richard is actually preaching for a Thai church uh, in Santa Rosa. And so they didn't get an opportunity for me to like bust them out and tell them how much we love them. So uh, I don't know if we can do this with a camera somehow, but can we just scream at the top of our lungs and tell Richard and Juanita how much we love them? We love you guys. Thank you for doing all you do. What they didn't mention in that video is that, um, <laughs> hopefully I'm not busting. Well, they're not here. I can do what I want to do. Um, there was a, a time where they were apprehensive about starting a group and they're like, ah, you know, our home and uh, the, the living room's kind of small and we have a lot of furniture and it's kind of cluttered in there and blah, blah, blah. And so my wife looked at him and she's like, well, then just get rid of the furniture. And they're like, okay. <laughs> so they literally sold furniture 
to make space because they knew that they wanted to house a group of people in their home and make a room for a family to be developed. And I, I tell you that what, I, there's probably not a week that goes by where James, shout out to you in the back and Richard and Juanita send me these pictures of a bunch of people. Some of them I don't even recognize because they don't even come to the church yet that are sitting around a table as they make room for family to be developed in this intimate setting. So they're amazing. One more time, we love you guys. Thank you for doing what you do. Okay, so let's get into this a little bit. Let's talk about the table. I don't know what you're thinking. You're like, Tim, you've been talking for 10 minutes. What do you mean let's get into this? Fear not. This will be an abbreviated sermon. Uh, we'll call it a sermonette, maybe an exhaustive exhortation, but uh, we will still end on time. But I, I want to take a couple of moments and just encourage us around this idea of the table. Uh, if you've got a Bible, open it up to the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 6. We're going to look at a couple of scriptures here, and then we'll pray. Uh, Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, the Apostle Paul says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. Someone's like, not me. <laughs> but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Uh, I want to take a couple of moments and just look at those first few words in that first sentence. While we were utterly helpless, Christ came. I know that at face value, that probably doesn't look like it has much to do with the table, but I think as we study this today, we're gonna to see how that has everything to do with the table, and here's why. Because when we were helpless, and we could not make our way to God, he came to us, and he carried us to his table. In fact, that's the title I wanna give this chat today, Carried to the Table, Carried to the Table. Uh, let me pray briefly, and then we'll get into it. Jesus, help, amen. I said brief. <laughs> uh, every year, twice a year, um, I am invited to a gathering by a friend of mine uh, that he hosts twice a year called the Young Guns Gathering. Um, I think uh, he invited me for the first time five or six years ago, and I think when he first invited me, I was a sprightly young man in my 30s, and I no longer qualify in the Young Guns category. I've got some gray hair, as you can see. Uh, I need a haircut. My hairstylist is on maternity leave right now or paternity leave. So I apologize for my unkept state today. Um, but uh, I, I think now I've been grandfathered in as a result of my relationship with this guy. But uh, the, the theme, the vision, the mission of these gatherings is, is, is incredible. Uh, the goal for him putting together these groups of 40 to 50 people every six months is that he wants men to finish the race well. Uh, he's been involved in ministry for a number of years and over the years, he's witnessed some heroes in the faith, some people that many of us would know and look up to kind of fall flat on their face and ruin everything that they had built in their life. Affairs and financial impropriety and misconduct and all the things you read about in the news. And he watched that happen time and time again. He said, you know what? I wanna create a space where men can come together. They can be open and honest about what they're facing. They can receive prayer and encouragement from other men of God. And this is a place of complete transparency, complete safety where we can come be ourselves and walk out feeling like we're a little bit more refreshed and we got some people fighting with us. And so he does this every six months. He creates these environments with 40 to 50 people to come together and be transparent. And because of his kind of global influence, uh, the, the clientele at these events is pretty impressive. Uh, it's made up of people, as you look around the room, that are music and movie producers and uh, people who are famous musicians, sports figures, and 
some people that have been involved in television shows that you've watched before, Duck Dynasty and The Bachelor and uh, Fortune 500 CEOs and uh, theologians and authors and leaders and pastors of these large ministries, just this really impressive collection of people. And then there's a few guys like me in the room. Uh, <laughs> some near 40-year-old, some rando that nobody knows, pastor at a three-year-old church on the west side of San Francisco with his only claim to fame uh, being a stunning set of ankles as we can all see today. That's all I got. That's all I got to offer. <laughs> but he starts all of these gatherings out the same. And at the beginning, he, he says, I know that there's a lot of us here, but we're going to take our time as long as this takes. And I want everybody in the room to stand up, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you're doing in your life right now. And then in front of God and all of these people, I want you to share the greatest challenge that you're in, in encountering personally and professionally right now. And I want you to be open and honest. Nothing is off limits. And believe it or not, in a group full of 50 people, it's amazing how quick things get real, things get honest. Within the first four or five guys, there's tears flowing and guys are hugging one another and they're praying for one another. It's, it's a really powerful setting. But I was, I was taken by something that was said over and over and over again at the last time we gathered just a few weeks ago. So you look around this room and you see a bunch of people that you would probably recognize from other avenues of life and people that we would look up to. It seemed as though one after the other opened up their introduction exactly the same. All of these influential, successful folks started by saying, I don't even know how I got here. I look around this room and I think, there are people way more deserving, way more successful, way more influential. I don't think that I belong in this room. I'm grateful for the invitation, but I feel like somebody else should be sitting in this chair. And about the 15th or 20th time I heard that, I had a revelation, an epiphany. I said, that feeling never goes away, does it? It doesn't matter how successful you are how many followers you have on Instagram, how many single ladies you dated on national television. <laughs> Doesn't matter how many zeros you have in your bank account, how many people work for you, how large your organization, how, how successful you are, there is still this little voice inside all of us that says, you probably don't belong at the table. Every single one of these people that we would look at and say, you belong at the table, they're singing that same old Sesame Street song. One of these things is not like the others. One of these things just doesn't belong. <laughs> they feel the same way that everybody else does. I don't belong here. I think we've all felt that to some extent. In fact, if, if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. One of the greatest enemies of intimacy is exclusivity. I think... All of us somewhere in our broken, frail human nature have a lie that's on repeat in our hearts that says, if there is an empty chair sitting at the table waiting for somebody, it's probably not for me. It's probably for somebody who's holier than me, somebody more deserving than me, somebody who's got their life a little bit more in order, whose past isn't quite as checkered, somebody who's more like the other people sitting around that table right now. Meanwhile, everybody else around that table was thinking the same thing. How the heck did I get here? I do not belong here. One of the greatest lies of the intimacy is exclusivity. Like, oh, you don't belong here. And so we never actually enter into that space of being known. 
This is why I loved Laura's message last week. By the way, shout out to Laura Van Hagen for an amazing sermon last weekend. If you were not here, please go back and listen to uh, the first of many sermons she will preach from this stage, an incredible sermon. Uh, and, and her thesis was very simple, based on the story of Zacchaeus, or uh, if you prefer, Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> uh, she said that Jesus is calling us to come just as we are. Not as we should be, not as we've cleaned up our lives and we've gotten our stuff in order and we look righteous enough, then we qualify to come to Jesus. But no, we can come right now in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our problems, regardless of our past, we can come just as we are to Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. One of the beauties of the gospel is that it is not exclusive. It is for everybody, the rich and the poor, the broken and those who look like they're put together. Come on, everybody, whosoever can come. And, and, and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That is the beauty of the gospel. But there seems to be a problem, a problem that we're facing on a macro scale right now, and maybe some of us in this room are even facing it today. It seems as though despite the invitation to come, Many of us feel incapable of doing so. We hear the invitation of Jesus, come unto me. We hear the invitation, hey, come into community, be open and honest. But many of us feel like we, we just don't have it in us to get there. Maybe it's the stockpile of guilt and shame or uh, the whisper of disqualification or it's the idea that if I'm open and honest, I'm probably going to be rejected. Whatever it is, many of us stay at a distance. And so I want to consider a question in these last few moments that we have together, a question that I think we must answer if we're truly going to be seated at this table. What do you do when you feel like you can't come even though there's an invitation? What do you do when you just feel crippled and broken it's just exhausting to even consider the idea of dragging yourself to Jesus. Let me pose it like this. What do you have to do, or excuse me, what do you do when you have to be carried to the table? Carried to the table. Uh, well, there's a story in, in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9 of a guy who found himself in that situation. And before we go into that story, let me give you a little bit of context so that you can understand what's happening as we lead into this. Because I think once we understand the context, it becomes quite a bit more potent. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we witness uh, then shepherd boy David, uh, a guy that many of us are familiar with in scripture, a guy whom the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. We see him making a promise, a covenant with his closest friend, Jonathan. Jonathan at the time is the heir apparent to the throne. His father Saul is king of Israel. And as the firstborn son, Jonathan is next in line to sit in the throne and to rule over all of, of the Israelites. Uh, but Jonathan has watched as his father's heart has grown far from God. He's watched the grace of God lift off of his father's life. And he knows that there's a good chance that his father's been rejected. And so with this kind of prophetic intuition, he comes to David and he says, I have a feeling that you're going to be the next king. And if you're going to be the next king, I want you to make a promise to me. Promise me that if I die and you're sitting on the throne, that you will care for my family, care for my children as if they are your very own. 
Now, that's a, that's a pretty massive request when you consider culturally what he's asking. In these days, if another power were to come in and take over the throne, they would immediately execute all of the surviving uh, descendants of the previous dynasty to ensure that some you know, rogue person who happened to escape doesn't come and try to usurp the throne back from the person who is now sitting in power. Very common to execute the whole family. But Jonathan is saying, I don't want you to just spare my children. I want you to care for my children. I want you to treat them as if they are your very own. And David, because he loves Jonathan, he agrees to this covenant, to this promise. Well, as uh, Jonathan feared, uh, that very thing took place. The Philistines come and uh, they attack Israel and his father Saul and him along with a couple of his brothers are out on the battlefield and all of them are killed by the enemy, making way for David to ultimately become the next king. But we learn that when news of Jonathan's death reaches his family back in Jerusalem, uh, his family attempts to flee for fear that they would be executed by the new people. And in their fleeing, the, the family nurse, the caretaker, the, um, the au pair, if you will, that's a San Francisco term, <laughs> uh, she picks up his only son, Mephibosheth, a five-year-old boy, and she must have dropped him from a high place because we learn that he becomes crippled while the family is trying to flee. So fast forward, a couple of years later, Mephibosheth is grown. Now David is king of Israel. But even though he's made a promise to his friend Jonathan to care for his family, Mephibosheth is not within the care of David. He still finds himself at a distance in a foreign city, living in fear, wondering that if he were to truly come to David, would he be executed or would he be spared? And this is where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It says, David then asked Ziba, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He's crippled in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Makir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Makir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise, my covenant to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you'll eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba replied, yes, my lord, the king, I'm your servant. I'm going to do everything that you've commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. That's a powerful story in its own right, isn't it? A beautiful story of, of redemption, of belonging. I think a, a, a story that tugs in the heartstrings of many of us. But like most biblical narratives, there is a story within the story. As you look beneath the surface, as we mine just a little bit, we're going to discover that there is a greater significance, perhaps even a personal significance to what we read here in 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to guess um, that probably most of us in the room don't know anybody named Mephibosheth, right? 
probably not a very popular name in the baby books these days, you know. We were thinking Skylar or Braxton or Liam or Mephibosheth. That one sounds good. <laughs> no, probably not. Which is odd because people name their kids some weird stuff these days, don't they? Come on, parents are on crack these days naming their kids. You're like, what is happening? True story, side note. My wife and I were youth ministries for 10 years and we saw a lot of crazy names in our youth ministry. Real talk, there was a, a couple of guys, they were brothers, and their names were Lamangelo and Arangelo. And phonetically spelled out, it was lemon jello and orange jello. And I'm like, I'm sorry, man. Your mom don't even love you, bro. I, here's what I picture in my head. I'm like, she's sitting in the bed. She just had the babies. They're like, would you like some jello? And she's like, yeah, let's just go ahead and name them that. Like, that's, a, that's the only logical explanation I have for those names. But I digress. Mephibosheth is probably not a very popular baby name. And, and the reason it's, it's not a popular name is probably because of what it means. When you look at Mephibosheth's name in the Hebrew, it literally means broken and ashamed. Broken and ashamed, which is a bit ironic when you consider the fact that the poor guy got dropped and his legs were broken. You're like, you had no chance, buddy. Like, your name meant this is what was going to happen. But, but beyond his physical brokenness, I think his name is kind of tragically prophetic, isn't it? Here's a guy that was supposed to be the next king. Remember, he's the only son of Jonathan, and Jonathan was next in line to become king. He had great promise for his future. And yet, because of something that he didn't do, at the fault of some generational curses that he got from his granddaddy, he finds himself dropped by life, living in brokenness and shame, wondering, how did I get here? He was a kid. He didn't deserve this. It just happened to him. And yet as a result of his life's circumstance, he finds himself broken and ashamed, living in a city that is aptly named Lodabar. Again, a significant word in the Hebrew. This city name, Lodabar, it means no word and no communication. Quite literally, it means isolated, by yourself, no one even knows you're there. In fact, the, the, a lot of theologians believe that this city got its name because it housed a whole bunch of people like Mephibosheth. Uh, one theologian, uh, Dr. Weigel, that's fun to say, he says, Lodabar housed the lost, the unskilled, the uneducated outcasts of society, those whom people would scorn, pass by, and pay no attention. So, so let's put all this together, shall we? You have a guy who got dropped by life, who now finds himself broken and ashamed, living in a place of isolation, in a place where nobody knows him, no one really knows what's going on in his life. He's surrounded by people, but he's completely alone. No one cares. He's just kind of coasting through life in his brokenness and in his shame. And suddenly, this story becomes personal, doesn't it? Suddenly, this is no longer a story about a five-year-old boy in history past. It's amazing how quickly, when you look beneath the surface, stories like this become an autobiography. It's amazing how, when we look beneath the surface, we see that 
I am Mephibosheth. You are Mephibosheth. Anyone who has ever found themselves dropped and broken and ashamed and living in isolation, wondering if anybody actually knows what's happening on the inside, does anybody even know that this is where I'm at right now? Suddenly, this story becomes very personal. But, but here's the great irony of our story and of his story. He didn't need to be there. He was not forced to stay in Lodabar. Remember, his dad made a covenant with the king. There was already a covenant in place to protect Mephibosheth, to provide for him, to be treated as one of the king's own sons. And yet, because of his brokenness and because of his shame, because by his own admission, I'm nothing more than a dead dog, he stays in this place of isolation he settles in loneliness because he thinks that is where he belongs. But then, one day, because of a covenant, the king, a man after God's own heart, sends a servant to go and find Mephibosheth. And when the servant shows up and he finds him in his brokenness and his loneliness and in his shame in this place of isolation, he looks at Mephibosheth and he says, you don't have to stay here any longer. This is not your eternal resting place, Mephibosheth. No, the king is calling you home. And he doesn't leave it at an invitation. He doesn't say, hey, uh, Mephibosheth, I just want you to know there's, a, there's a, a chair for you at the king's table. If you can catch an Uber and get over there, then like it's going to be just fine. I just want you to know it's available. Or, or maybe even more cruel, he doesn't say, hey, if you can figure out a way to crawl and scrape your way to the king's table, look at you. You can't even, but if you can, if you can work to get there, if you can find a way to make it to the table, then there's a spot for you there. No, he doesn't just bring the good news to Mephibosheth. He brings Mephibosheth to the good news. He says, I see that you're broken. I see that you're ashamed. Oh, you can't get up? That's fine. I will hoist you up on my shoulders and I will carry you to the table where you belong. If you can't make it there by yourself, that's okay, Mephibosheth. I will make it there with you. I will bring you to the table. I hope... You, you hear what I'm laying down right now. I hope you're mopping up what I'm spilling, which you're picking up what I'm putting down because I'm laying it on pretty thick. <laughs> this is not just a story about a five-year-old kid in the Bible. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news. As it says in Romans chapter five, verse eight, when we were utterly helpless, when we could not make our way to God, when we could not crawl our way to his table, Christ came. God sent Jesus. Isaiah 53 calls him the suffering servant. And when the servant was sent with the heart of God, he found us in our low debar, in our brokenness, in our shame, in our isolation. And he said, I am calling you back to a table. And if you can't make it there on your own, guess what? I will pick you up and I will put you on my shoulders. I will carry your sin. I will carry your shame. I will carry your past. And I will bring you to the table where you belong. And not because of anything you did. 
Not even because your lineage says you belong at the table. No, because there was a covenant that was made before you ever even breathed your first breath. And he said, I will make a covenant to allow, a new covenant with my blood to allow you to be seated among royalty at the table. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That when we could not get to the table on our own, we were carried to the table. And I think that that, as we start out this series today, that is the invitation that the Holy Spirit would make to everybody sitting in this room. Will you let me carry you? No, I I can fix myself. Nah, man, you're broken. I, I can try harder to do better. No, you can't. Even on your best day, your righteousness is like filthy rags to God. Will you let me carry you? And in just a moment, I'm gonna ask us to respond to that a little bit differently than we would normally respond here on a Sunday morning. In fact, I'll ask the band to come now because here's what I wanna do over the next couple of moments. I'm gonna ask the band to sing a song, a song that we've never sung before in our church. And I wanna ask you to Listen to the lyrics of this song for a few moments. If you'd like to join and sing along, you're welcome to do that as well. But the song shares its title with the sermon today. It's called Carried to the Table, written by Leland circa 2006. And it's a powerful, powerful song. And as you hear this, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, is there any place where I'm living right now in isolation? Any place where I'm accepting my brokenness and my shame? as the Holy Spirit reveals those those areas to you, I want you to say, I give you permission to carry me to the table, to seat me where I belong. But before they do that, there's a group of people I I want to address just to make sure that this is all inclusive today. As I was praying and I was preparing this week, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me that there are going to be people here this Sunday morning that haven't just settled in Lodabar, but have returned to Lodabar. Maybe once you were seated among the king's children. You were seated at the table. And for whatever reason, shame, hurt, betrayal, disagreement, whatever, you're no longer there. Maybe it's by your own desire. Just, I'm gonna take a break from this thing and I'm gonna go do my own thing for a little while. So you find yourself away from the table. And like everybody who wants to be at the table but isn't there yet, there's this lie playing on repeat in your head that says, oh, I had a chair there, but I don't deserve to go back. I I don't feel like there's still a seat for me there. The Holy Spirit would say to you today, that chair has never been occupied by anybody else. It has remained vacant for the moment that you would come back home. Because remember, this was not the first time Mephibosheth sat at the king's table. He... He had already sat among royalty before. As a boy, related to the heir apparent, he would have sat at the king's table. So this was not a first time invitation. This was an invitation to come back to the table. And if that's you today, hear the Holy Spirit. Son, daughter, I'm calling you back. There's still a seat at the table for you. Would you bow your heads for just a moment as I pray and the band will begin to sing in just a moment. Father, we thank you 
We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your willingness to find us in our isolation, to find us in our brokenness, and to carry us back, to be seated among those that you call worthy, righteous, son, daughter. And over these next couple of moments, as we just listen, as we receive from the Holy Spirit, I pray you would draw every heart that it's at a distance and you would bring them home. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Table. 
this morning and you hear the Holy Spirit calling, maybe you've been at a distance from God or maybe you've never taken your seat at the table. I'm going to ask everyone to bow their heads one more time and close their eyes. And If that's you, I want to pray a very simple prayer of commitment today with you. I invite you to come to the table. But before I do that, I always love to see who I'm praying with because I, I do pray for you during the week as you make this decision. So just real briefly, if that's you and you need to come home to Jesus, would you quickly lift up your hand and look at me? Thank you. Yes, 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 yes. Right over there. Yeah, I got you right there. Yes, right there. Yes, both of you guys back there. Yeah, right there in the altar. Come on, lots of people coming home. Yeah, both of you guys over there. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, let me pray this prayer. You can repeat it there with me in your heart. Say, Jesus, today I'm coming home. I thank you that you came to find me that you came to this broken earth. You gave your life so that I could find life in you. Today, I make this conscious decision to follow you, to be carried by you when necessary, to be seated among the sons and daughters of the King. Help me to love you all my days, to serve you, to live according to your word from this day forward so that when I pass away and I breathe my last and I enter into eternity, I would look at you in heaven eye to eye, and you would say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that is set before you. I love you. You have all of me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, can we just thank God for every single person making that decision today? Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.